Hello, my name is Temitokweade. Everybody calls me Ralph. And uh, I'll be doing the Bible reading today. The Bible reading this morning shall be taken from the book of Luke, chapter 22. I'll be reading from verses 24 through to 38. I'll be reading from the New International Version. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The king of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not the you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you shall be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am not but I am among you as one who serves. You are those you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you, all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with, with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you, know, that you know me. Then Jesus asked them, When I sent you without purse, a bag, bag and sandals, did you lack anything? Nothing, they replied. He said to them, But now, if you have a purse, take it and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, Sell your cloak and buy one. It is, it is written, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. The disciples said, See, Lord, there are two swords. That's enough, he replied. And the Lord blessed the reading of these words. Thanks, Ralph. Thank you, Ralph, and uh, thank you to Mark, to the worship team for leading us this morning. We're coming to the book of Luke again as we're working our way through the way of the king, the series that we're doing through the final chapters of the book of Luke, and we're following Jesus as king on the last part of his journey to Jerusalem and through to his death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And today, we're looking at the king's pattern. So, I'm going to open in prayer, and then we're going to look at God's word together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us instruction from your word, that you bring us encouragement from your word, that you have a challenge for us in your word. And we pray that our ears and our hearts might be open this morning to hear what you are saying to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It would be very easy for us to see today's passage as a bit of a moralistic tale. Um, Here's Jesus and his disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus says to them, you should be like a servant, like I am a servant to you. And I think when a lot of uh, people who are not Christians think about Jesus, they think about this man who uh, is a person who lived a good life and gave an example for others to follow. And, And they think that the Christian faith is about us trying as people to live up to the example of a good man called Jesus. It's a moralistic sort of a tale but the problem with that is that it, it really lacks power. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah, he was a good man. He lived a good life. Um, and let's try and be good like that. It lacks power because none of us are good like that, are we? <laughs> we fail, we fall like Peter in, uh, you know, in this passage where we're told that Peter's got a lot of bluff and bravado But what we'll come to in coming weeks is the fact that he does fall, that he does fail, as Jesus predicts here in this passage. And when we think about ourselves, we think very much that we're a bit like Peter. And and sometimes, and I don't know about you, but maybe there's been times in your life, in, in your Christian journey, where you've... You've heard a sermon and maybe there's been an opportunity for response and you've responded to, to once again dedicate yourself to following the Lord and then the week happens. And if you're like me, I'm sure there are times where you think, oh, I've done it again. Why can't I follow him? I, I want to be like with the boldness of Peter, I want to proclaim, Jesus, I'll do everything for you. I'll give up my life for you. I'll go to prison for you. But then when the rubber hits the road, I mess it up. You feel like that sometimes? And so if Jesus is just an example that we're meant to try and do our best to follow... There's no power in this passage at all for us, but just a lot of heartache and a lot of realisation that, hey, I'm not as good as Jesus was. Are you with me? Yeah. So as I was looking at this passage, it seemed to me that the key to understanding the passage is verse 37. And what I'm going to do is I want to just read out um, the the little section from verse 35 to 38 without 37, okay? So, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, 
but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one and they said look Lord here are two swords and he said to them it is enough that seems to fit together pretty well doesn't it without verse 37 you could just read 35 36 38 and it makes perfect sense and it fits together quite well and uh, this is something that I encourage you to think about when you're doing your own reading of the Bible is are there questions that jump out to you that you say why is this like this because when you actually go and you look at it you think why is verse 37 there in the middle of this 35 36 38 they fit together so well and right in the middle of that is verse 37 which seems to be completely unrelated and he said to them when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals did you lack anything they said uh, did you lack anything they said nothing he said to them but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one for I tell you for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me and he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment and they said look Lord here are two swords and he said to them it is enough for I tell you it's like Jesus is saying once upon a time I sent you out and, and we know back in Luke chapter 10 he sent out the 72 and he sent them and he said don't take a money bag you know don't take anything and so here when he says did you lack anything when I sent you out they said no nothing but things are changing and the reason why things are changing is because Jesus is about to be numbered with the transgressors where once maybe a couple of years earlier when he sent out the 72 Jesus's ministry was being widely acclaimed by everyone he was doing miracles people were looking and saying you know is this the Messiah and he was getting much acclaim everywhere and so his disciples went out and they went out in the sort of the goodwill of being followers of Jesus but now Jesus is about to be numbered with the sinners he's about to be crucified on a cross with common criminals and because he will be crucified and because he will be counted with sinners they will now face a different circumstance when they go out they will face the possibility of persecution and trial and difficulty ahead and this verse 37 to me is key to understanding this whole passage today the big question that we have is how can I follow Jesus when my own conscience condemns me and maybe like Peter 
who's full of bravado, you've had those moments where you've said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you with everything that I am. And then you've had the crash. And your conscience condemns you and you say, how can I follow Jesus? Am I good enough? I'm not good enough. How can I possibly claim to be a Christian when I know that I fall and I fail and I trip and I stumble? The Christian band from the uh, 80s and 90s DC talk had a song, What If I Stumble? What if I fall? What if I lose my step and make fools of us all? And they were struggling with this idea because, you know, Christian musicians, they were the biggest Christian band in the world at the time. They were widely applauded and everyone was looking at these guys. They were only young guys. They were in their early 20s. And everyone was looking at these guys and putting them up on a pedestal and they're going... Uh, I don't know if I can stand on that pedestal because I'm aware of my own sinfulness. What if I stumble? What if I fall? So the big question for us today is, how can I follow Jesus when my own conscience condemns me? The big idea for us is that Jesus is numbered with us so that we can be numbered with him. Verse 37 says, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. It's interesting that twice there it talks about the fulfillment. And he was numbered with the transgressors is a quote from Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53 is the passage which talks about God's servant. And we're, we're pretty well aware of, of some of the things in Isaiah 53. It talks about him being a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And those sorts of things come through at Easter time quite frequently. And Isaiah 53 is often used at Easter time as a, as a passage for reflection about what Jesus did on the cross. Interestingly enough... The New Testament doesn't often look back to Isaiah 53, but this is one of the specific instances where it does. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He was counted with you and me, with sinners, with those who fall and fail. He identified himself with us and was obedient to death on a cross, a death that he didn't deserve, in which he took in his body my sin and yours. And because Jesus was numbered with you and I, that gives us the power, it gives us the the ability, if you like, that's probably not the right word. It, it gives us the motivation. It gives us the right to be numbered with him. Second Corinthians chapter 5 talks about uh, Jesus became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. This gives us the power 
so that today's passage is not just a moral lesson that we can't live up to. The outline for our um, passage is this, that we are numbered as one who serves, verses 24 to 27, that we are numbered as one who endures, verses 28 to 30, that we are numbered as those whose faith does not fail, verses 31 to 34, and we are numbered as those who are ready to follow in trials, verses 35 to 38. So at the beginning of the passage, we, we have here a dispute happening uh, amongst the disciples. And it, it's ironic, isn't it, that Jesus has just shared, and we, and we talked about this last Sunday, that powerful image of being around the table where Jesus said, you know, come and eat of my body. Um, and I'll just read it. He took bread and when he had given it, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He's just shared with them around the table about how he is giving his body, of how his blood is going to be shed for them. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. It probably came off the back of the fact that um, he tells them that he's going to be betrayed. And we're told in verse 23, they began to question one another which of them it was who could be doing this. So Jesus has said, someone's going to betray me. And they're going, who is it? Is it Nathaniel? Is it Thomas? He's always been a bit flaky. And then they, they morphed. Instead of talking about who was going to betray Jesus, they started talking about, well, who's the greatest? Hey, oh, I, I'm James. I, I went up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Or may, maybe it's Peter. He's the one that stepped out of the boat in, in faith to walk on the water. They were arguing it's instructive for us to recognize that this was not the first time they had argued about this. Uh, in, in Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9, we, we have them arguing about who's the greatest and, and Jesus brings a child and, and says to them, you know, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me and and he points them to the fact that if we're to receive the kingdom we're to come as a little child with the the humility with the faith of a little child in mark chapter 10 uh, james and john are, are vying for position in god's kingdom and they come and ask jesus can can we sit at your left hand and your right hand when you come into your kingdom and jesus He's not happy with them. And the other disciples are indignant. They're going, why are you asking for that? We're just as good as you. So this is a repeated occurrence through the Gospels where the disciples are arguing about who is greater. Who's the best? I'm a better disciple than you are. 
earlier in Luke in chapter 14 we have the parable of those who are invited to the wedding feast and Jesus says don't sit in the place of honor when you're invited to the wedding feast because when the master of the feast comes someone who's more important than you might get invited to come up and take your place and you'll be relegated to the back instead Jesus says sit in the lowly place and then when the master of the feast comes they will promote you and, and again in Luke 18 we have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector and the, the Pharisee is, is there crowing about his own goodness. He's not praying to God for things, he's, he's praying to God to say, how good am I? And the tax collector who bows his head and beats his breast and says, God please forgive me a sinner. Jesus says he's the one that goes away justified. And at the end of both of those parables... We read, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And it seems that after all this time and previous occasions of arguing about who was most important and Jesus telling them that they need to be humble and parables trying to get through to them that they should be humble, that even here near the end of his ministry... Just days or a day before he's to be crucified, they're still arguing about who's the greatest. But when we recognize that Jesus has been counted with us, that he has been numbered as a sinner with us, that he came to serve us. How much more power is there in his rebuke to them this time? He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And here's a contrast here between Jesus the king and the kings of the Gentiles. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Now, that's a sort of rhetoric question to say, well, isn't the person sitting at the dining table more important than the person who's serving them? Uh, the, you know what happens in a rhetoric question? Like, that's where the answer is obvious. Uh, and like, it, a preacher might pose a, a rhetoric question and in your head, you know the answer. You don't have to say it out loud, but... But that's the, the power of a rhetoric question. And the rhetoric question is, who's greater here? The person sitting at the table or the one serving them? And the answer, of course, is the one sitting at the table is greater. But Jesus says, I, the king, come as one who serves. It turns the whole of our culture upside down. The king normally is the one in charge, the one who exercises lordship over others. But in the kingdom of God, the king is one who serves and his people are to also serve. I wonder, are we really 
much different from the disciples? How many times in church have you thought that you'd be the right person to do something but someone else gets chosen? And you've thought, oh, I'd I'd be able to do a better job than that. How many times have, have we been smugly satisfied when we see some high-profile Christian leader fall. Oh, we're not like that in the Baptist church. We think about the Royal Commission into um, abuse against children. And I reckon there was probably a lot of Baptists who were thinking, boy, I'm glad we're not the Catholic church. Are we vying for our own importance? Are we trying to say we're better than someone else? Let's just bring it a bit more home. Have there been times in Baptist church life, and I'm speaking this to myself as, as much to anyone else, where I've argued for a particular point of view on a matter that's not doctrinal. It's a strategy thing. It's, it's not really all that important, but I've stood my ground because I think this is right. And how much is that me trying to say, I'm more important than you and your, your thoughts on this matter? So Jesus calls them to be as he is. And because he's identified with us, because he's taken our sin, because he is numbered with the transgressors, that gives us a place at the table. Uh, they're, They're around the table with Jesus He's shared the Passover meal with them. He's instituted the new covenant in his blood with them. And because of that new covenant in his blood, and because of his invitation, they are able to sit at the table. Not because of their own worthiness, but because he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with us so that we might be numbered with him, numbered as those who serve. In verses 28 to 30, we we have then Jesus acknowledging their, their endurance. There were many, we're told, in other parts of the, the Gospels who turned away from Jesus when he taught difficult things. People turned away. But the disciples had remained with him throughout the whole of his ministry. And he wants to encourage them that for those who endure, there is great reward. And, and these, this promise here, you know, part of it, I think, is a promise specifically to the disciples. 
He says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't think he's saying to every believer that we're going to sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I think that's a, a promise for the disciples. But we're all invited to eat and drink at his table in his kingdom. There are many promises for us, for those of us who endure. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, endurance. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. John 3.16, that most well-known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There is great reward for us if we will endure as followers of Jesus. James 1 verse 12, blessed is the man who remains, man or woman, who remains steadfast under trial for when they have stood the test they will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. How great will it be to receive the crown of life at the end of days for Jesus to bring us into his kingdom and say, come, eat and drink at my table. Receive the crown of life and the crown of righteousness. Jesus was numbered as one of us so that we could be numbered as those who endure. And we come now to the section about Peter. I don't know about you, but so often I've, I've read this and I've focused on Peter's failing. Just a bit later, we know that in verses 54 and following, Peter denies Jesus three times. Jesus predicts that in verse 34. And I think we can be so focused on the failure of Peter that we miss the importance of what Jesus is saying here. First of all, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, the you there is plural. Um, the ESV is, and I love the ESV as a translation, it's good, but it's not always the best one. Um, and this is something I encourage you, don't get hung up on a particular translation as if that's the only one. <laughs> In this instance, the NIV uh, gives a better sense because it picks up the difference between the plural word you, meaning you plural, and the singular word you, meaning you singular. So in the NIV, this verse, verse 31 reads, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Can you see how different that makes it feel? All of them. Satan's trying to sift all of them. Satan's been attacking them throughout the ministry of Christ. There's no greater evidence of that than the fact that Judas betrays Jesus. 
Satan was attacking all of the disciples and he will attack all of us who are disciples. Jesus has prayed here specifically for Peter. Isn't that marvellous? He's prayed that Peter, that his faith may not fail. And I think we, we put so much stock in the fact that Peter denies Jesus. And we don't put enough stock in the fact that after his denial, Peter repents and returns to Jesus and his faith does not fail. Um, Graham, Dr. W. Graham Scroggy in his commentary on Luke and John says, Jesus did not pray that Peter not, might not fall, which he did, but that his faith might not collapse, and it did not. See, the key here is that faith is not how good am I? Faith is not saying, oh, I'm going to try and be good enough for Jesus. Jesus, I'll go with you to the end. Coming down the front in a service and saying, I'm going to be committed to you 100%. That's not faith. Faith is recognizing that Jesus is the one who took my sin. And that my salvation rests on his work. He is the one who is numbered with sinners. We must not assume that because we're here in the 21st century that Satan is not at work. J.C. Ryle in his commentary says about the devil... He is called by our Lord a murderer, the prince of this world, and a liar. Peter compares him to a roaring lion prowling around as he seeks to devour someone. John says that he accuses the brethren. The devil is always working against the Christian church, taking away the good seed from people's hearts, sowing weeds among the wheat, stirring up persecution, suggesting false teaching, and encouraging divisions among Christians. The world is a snare to the believer. The flesh is a burden, but there is no enemy as dangerous as the restless, invisible, experienced enemy, the devil. Satan wants to sift all of us like wheat. It's like Satan coming to God at the beginning of the book of Job and saying, the only reason he believes you is because you've put a hedge around him, because you've protected him. And the whole of the book of Job is this exploration of faith. An exploration of, is our faith because of the blessings that we've received or is our faith in God because of who he is and what he's done? Jesus, he doesn't just pray for Peter. 
In Hebrews chapter 7, we read, This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number, but they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to make intercession for all of us who draw near to God. He is praying right now for you and he is praying for me. Just like he prayed for Peter. Not that we won't fall, we will, but that we might hold on in faith to the one who is our salvation. And having held on and turned again and repented and come back to him, Peter is encouraged to strengthen his brothers and sisters. When we hold on in faith, we have a testimony. I'm going to read from J.C. Ryle again. If you haven't ever heard of him, he's a, a Christian pastor in England in the, I'm going to say, 1800s. I could be wrong there. It was a long time ago. Um, a wonderful, um, if you get any of his commentaries, they're wonderfully... Um, devotional and they get to the heart it is one of God's special attributes that he can bring good out of evil he can make the weaknesses and infirmities of some members of his church work together for the benefit of the whole body of his people he can make a disciple's fall the means of making him a better person to strengthen others. Have we ever fallen and by Christ's mercy been raised to newness of life? Then surely we are just the people who should deal gently with our brethren. We should tell them from our own experience how evil and bitter sin is. We should caution them against trifling with temptation we should warn them against pride and presumption and the neglect of prayer. We should tell them of Christ's grace and compassion if they have fallen. Above all, we should deal with them humbly and meekly, remembering what we ourselves have gone through. Friends, just go back for a moment to that question. How can I follow Jesus when my own conscience condemns me? It's good if your conscience condemns you. That's a call for repentance. That's a call to come again to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's a call to come again to him who was numbered with the transgressors, who took our sin and to place our faith in him. Our faith is not in our ability to be good enough. Next time I'll be good enough. No, our faith is in the one who was sinless. 
and yet took our sin. He was numbered with us so that we could be numbered as those whose faith in him does not fail. And finally, we are called to be numbered as those who are ready to follow in trials. We've already covered this a bit, but it was easy when Jesus sent them out earlier in his ministry. There was much joy amongst the people who received them. And the 72 that Jesus sent out came back with stories to tell of of God doing miraculous deeds. And Jesus at that time even says to them in response, I saw Satan thrown down from heaven. But now, Jesus is crucified. He's to be crucified as a common criminal. And their path won't be so easy. We need to be careful not to get um, sidetracked by the business about the swords. (laughs) So... Jesus says, you know, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Uh, It's all part of his figurative language to say, it's not going to be easy anymore. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to work for what you you have. It's not going to be the same as it was previously. We, We know that Jesus isn't talking literally about the sword because in verse 37 they said here's two swords and he says it's enough now uh, I was talking with Pastor Phil about this during the week and and we, we were saying it's a if you were to read that in Aussie it's like they said here's two swords and he said that'll do but that's not the sense <laughs> when he says it is enough he said it's more like he's saying that's enough you've you've missed the point entirely And the reason we can be sure that that's the case is because just a little later in the passage, when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane and Judas brings the crowd to come and arrest Jesus and Peter pulls out his sword and chops off the ear of the chief's servant, the high priest's servant, Jesus says, no more of this. And he heals the ear of the high priest's servant. I think that's a pretty clear indication that Jesus wasn't meaning that you better all go and buy swords because I'm about to start an armed insurrection. The kingdom values are completely upside down to this world's values. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, but Jesus says, I came as one who will serve The king's pattern is different from the patterns of the kings of this world. And while he is saying to the disciples, you need to be ready for things to be tough. He's not saying, go and buy swords and, and, you know, there's a lot of people in various parts of Australia and the US who are arming themselves, you know, because they think that... uh, they think that you know they're going to have to defend themselves as Christians with their guns. That's not at all the call of Jesus. But he is saying, be ready. 
I'm persecuted. And in other parts of scripture, he says, no one is greater than their master. If, if I am persecuted, then so will you be. Where to be ready. Numbered as those who will follow him in trials. Jesus is numbered as one of the transgressors, as one of the sinners. He identifies with you and I so that we can be numbered with him. Will you put your faith in him today? I'm not asking you to make another declaration. You might have done it many times to say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you better this time. I'm not asking you to do that. I want to ask, will you put your faith in the one who was numbered with you? Let's pray. We're so grateful, Lord Jesus, for your love for us. That you would be obedient to death on a cross in order to show your love to take our sin, to make it possible for us to follow you. Increase our faith, we pray. May we be those who serve, who endure, whose faith does not fail, and who are ready to follow you through any trial of life. By your grace we pray. Amen.